Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handled them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank. NA member FDIC. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school, you're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. today's bonus episode, I am joined by author Dave Eggers. He has a new short story out called The Museum of Rain, now available as an ebook and audiobook through Scribd Originals, or if you'd like a hard copy, through McSweeney's. The story is set around a family reunion in Idaho in which a 73-year-old man named Oshin Mahoney leads 14 grandnieces and nephews to a site of remembrance he created 50 years before. At this titular Museum of Rain is a collection of bottles of rainwater from the many places around the world Oshin has lived. It's a spare but affecting and hopeful short story that unfolds entirely outside, in the wilderness. It really does feel like a breath of fresh air after the year we've had. Now, uh, before we get into it, a bit of housekeeping. We just received a new batch of Talk Easy mugs. They come in cream and navy. Some of you may already have one, but if you don't, and you'd like to support our show, we've included a link in the description of this episode. You can also just visit talkeasypod.com slash shop. That's talkeasypod.com slash shop. I really do like how these mugs came out. I'm a cream person myself, but 
Uh, I know many people prefer the Navy. Whatever you buy, I thank you in advance for the love and support. Also, as you've probably heard, we often send microphones to people that don't have one. I'm a little bit of a nerd when it comes to sound quality. But sometimes, like Fran Lebowitz or, in this case, Dave Eggers, people don't have technology. And, quite frankly, they don't want the technology, they don't like the technology, and they certainly are not interested in TalkEasy's technology. So I teased Dave a bit in the opening of this episode, but bear in mind that this was done on a cell phone and not an especially new cell phone. It does, however, lead us into a really interesting conversation around our addiction to technology, especially young people's addiction, which Dave has seen a lot of as the creator of 826 Valencia, a nonprofit that supports under-resourced students with creative writing skills. If you don't know their work, 826 has chapters around the country offering free educational programs to students and teachers alike. You can visit 826valencia.org to learn more. That's 826valencia.org. Now, without further ado, why don't we call up Dave Eggers? Hello. Hello. Is this Dave Eggers? Yep. Now, let's set the scene here. You're sitting in your garage, and we're going to do a podcast on your flip phone from like 2008, right? I would say it's 2014. <laughs> and, but the technology is probably older than that. It's not, it is exactly the flip phone that you would have had 14 years ago. Regardless of what phone you're using, whatever model it is, I'm glad you're here. You have this new novella that's available. It's called Museum of Rain. And since most folks listening have yet to read this, why don't you set up the short story for us? Well, it imagines a world where cats have taken up arms. They have been infected by a virus that makes them super intelligent and also engineering geniuses. So they've developed an arsenal of very deadly weapons that are also easy to conceal in their fur. Dave, I don't mean to be rude, but I think I was sent a different book. This is a different story. Oh, wait, <laughs> which one are we talking about? You know, I've always been terrible at describing the plot myself of anything. I'm always desperately hoping that the host will do that for me because it seems shameless and embarrassing. <laughs> so it's not the cat story, but I appreciate you teeing that one up. This is set around what I think is an unconventional family reunion of sorts. And I'll read from the press notes here. To celebrate the landmark birthday of an elder, the widely scattered Mahoney family has gathered for a reunion at the family compound as wildfires rage far to their north. Oshin Mahoney, a 73-year-old near-hermit who lives in an isolated cabin in Idaho, has been appointed to take 14 grandnieces and grandnephews on a hike to a site of remembrance he created 
in the shade of a manzanita tree 50 years before and has nearly forgotten. His Museum of Rain is a collection of bottles of rainwater from the many places around the world he has lived, the last one being from Granada, where he was shot in the 1983 U.S. invasion. What is your entry point into this piece? One thread of my family line goes back to these central coast hills, back to the town of Hollister, where an ancestor of mine, my great-great-great-grandfather, went across the plains from Missouri and settled in, uh, sort of co-founded the town of Hollister. I love the history of those towns and those hills. So I sort of thought, what what happens when one of the... uh, oldest members of the Mahoney clan comes back and he's never had children of his own and he sort of lived a mostly isolated life and his older brother Patrick kind of shames him into into contributing something to the family reunion. Otherwise, he's sort of a freeloader. So because Oshin had been a camp counselor, you know, in his youth, they say, well, why don't you just find something to do with all of the reunion kids today? Why don't you take him to that old weird place that you set up in the tree, the Museum of Rain. And I was just sort of interested in Oshin as a character who's looking back and who has kind of lived apart on purpose for decades, really, and in, in a in let most of the world and life pass by. And, and I think that there's part of him that worries a little bit that there's not going to be anything left when he's gone. He doesn't own anything. The things he does own have no worth, really. But then there's this strange site-specific art project that he so many decades before. And and I think like anybody going back to a site like that, you dread it. Whatever decay has happened is sort of mirrors your own physical decay. And that there's nothing going to be left other than broken glass and, and mud. So... You have him sort of entertaining these kids along the way and trying to teach him a thing or two about the natural world and an appreciation for it. But at the same time, he's sort of walking slowly toward a sign of his own mortality and ephemeralness. This cantankerous 73-year-old takes these kids to this makeshift museum and eventually, as to be expected on this journey, in the heat, the kids begin to ask, where are we going What is this museum anyway? So what, a kid says. You put some rain in some jars. There's so much dry humor in this story. It's as if Dave Eggers wrote the script for Are We There Yet? Except you've casted David Letterman in the role of Ice Cube. (laughs) There's nothing more fun than writing a cantankerous old man who is tough to please, but he does have this sort of secret hope that they are, that kids are still kids. And he is a bit afraid that they won't know what to do with a stick or won't be able to delight in the seeing a family of coyotes on a hill. But he is surprised and happy to find that kids are still kids. But if you present these things to them, if you give them the chance, every kid from the beginning of time will take to these things if you set them loose. The hills of the Central Coast haven't really changed a whole lot in the last couple hundred years. If you, there's so many spots that just have not been touched, really. There's so much open land, and you do see all of these things in one walk. And anytime I'm walking anywhere along the coast, in the hills of the coast, you'll see all of these things. This 
hoping to do justice and tribute to this part of the world. I think you do capture this dynamic between the children and this old man incredibly well. And I want to go to a passage in the story because of these 14 children, there's one kid, Rebecca, that's especially precocious. She seems to understand the old man's sense of humor and wit. And I thought you could read uh, a passage for us as Rebecca and her friend Caitlin begin to ask O'Sheen questions about the museum. All right. Where are we going? Caitlin asked. The Museum of Rain, Rebecca said. Not a real museum, Caitlin said. Yes, it is, Rebecca said. You'll see. Is it true you were in a war and got shot? Caitlin asked. More or less, yes, O'Sheen said. You didn't die? Caitlin asked. O'Sheen laughed. No, I didn't die. So is the museum about the war, she asked. No, he said, it's not about the war. Satisfied that there was nothing interesting about O'Sheen or where they were going, Caitlin skipped ahead to catch up with the larger group. O'Sheen slowed down until he and Rebecca were at the rear of the group. The path was dusty, striped by violet tree shadows. Sorry about her, Rebecca said. Have you been to the museum? He asked. She seemed to know more about it than any of the other children. Well, she said, but Patrick said it was there, that you built it because you were in love with someone. O'Sheen stopped. He didn't know where to start. Was that something he told everyone, or only you? Just me, she said. He's your grandfather? She nodded. Was he wrong? Well, yes, he's usually wrong, O'Sheen said. The Museum of Rain was just a thing. The words occurred to me one day, and then I started filling jars with rain. But I saw a strange hollow in this big old manzanita, and that became the Museum of Rain. Grandpa Patrick said it was a monument to your tears, because some girl left you. The kids were far ahead of them now. We better catch up, O'Sheen said. But listen, Patrick tells a good story. He always has. But it's entirely false. Not a word of it is true. It is, I admit, more memorable than the truth, which is that one day I just did it. I like that story, too, Rebecca said. Sometimes, O'Sheen said, people simply do things. They get an idea and do it, and it's not tied up with any love or childhood trauma. If we believe there's a dramatic origin for every human endeavor, we deprive our species of the ability to simply conjure an idea, to just make stuff and do things. I'm learning the banjo, Rebecca said, and O'Sheen laughed a long while. That's the end of that passage. I uh, I like that Rebecca a lot. It just sort of came out of nowhere. And um, But I think that those occasional connections, you never know who that kid is going to be that gets your jokes and can pick up on the most subtle, wry humor and also... Uh, just sort of take in pseudo-profundity O'Sheen just put forth and sort of roll with it and interpret it and um, uh, get it on a bone-deep level. There's nothing more appropriate than her answering that she's taking up the banjo, which is another thing without origins and childhood trauma. I just wanted to sit with that last passage. If we believe there's a dramatic origin story for every human endeavor... 
We deprive our species of the ability to simply conjure an idea, to just make stuff and do things. This feels almost prescriptive in a way, especially in an era where I think we have a tendency to mythologize creation, to explain away how and why art comes from someone. Yeah, it's a terrible thing. I, I find it incredibly damaging because I don't know if it started with giving every superhero an origin story or when this began, but we so hurt the cause of art if it's really just the end product of some personal evolution or therapy or catharsis or whatever it is. I think that we have got to allow that serendipity of creation sometimes, that sometimes you just come up with something and that there is no, you know, tidy origin story for something. And, um, uh, and that that's okay. And that it's kind of glorious and fun. A painting would come into the brain of a painter or a musical progression would just appear in the mind of a, you know, composer. Um, and it isn't about like, you know, these rosebud moments that I think have become easy currency and that everybody wants to know when was that moment, when was that thing, and how does it tie to birthday party where you didn't get the cake you wanted when you were six or whatever it is. I think that Freud has entered and laid waste to so much of uh, how we understand how art is made, and I think that we need to extricate him from this before he destroys it completely. He has, you know, insinuated himself into every aspect of our lives, but this part of it is personal to me. But I also wonder, do you think this tendency to understand the origin story, to remove ambiguity from creation, does it feel generational to you or merely the byproduct of growing up in the age of information? Where so many of us believe there is a knowable, googleable rhyme and reason to everything. I don't think it's new at all. I think this has been going on for a long time to try to, you know, every biography of every writer or every analysis of any great work, they take it apart to the point where it's lifeless, inert, and almost invariably um, that analysis is wrong reductive and based on specious evidence. Every so often, I guess it's right. But I think that we do have this need to put together some understandable moment of creation for everything. But I think it's a mistake. I think we kill and take all the life out of anything when we overanalyze it. I think sometimes it comes from an act, from a place of love. You know, you want to know everything about the making of something that you love, whether it's a movie or poem or but I think that we have to also sort of resist the idea that it's ever going to be completely knowable and that we're going to have an easy, comprehensible, tidy little story about the making of any one thing. We have got to allow the mystery and the magic and the of it and also the fact that we're just it's almost impossible to recreate those conditions and know exactly how it all came together. The fact that we have so much more information now it's more shareable, and also that we have far more misinformation than ever before in the modern era. It does create a, a recipe for this desire to know these things, 
and the possibility for everyone to miss know them, I guess. So I'm always trying to push back to make sure we understand how little we're ever going to know for sure. I bring up the generational nature of this question because a lot of the subtext of this short story comes from the fact that this is a 73-year-old man shepherding what you call an assemblage of gangly youth. And I couldn't help but think about how this piece is shaped by your experiences of creating 826 Valencia in the Mission District of San Francisco. Were you thinking about that at all in, in this? No, but after I wrote it, I thought, huh, there's a, there's a little bit of a parallel there. And I think the best art really comes from the subconscious. And um, I was reading, it was Ray Bradbury used to have a thing over his desk. And I know this because he said he did. <laughs> Not that it's a third hand account, but he has a thing over his desk or he did that said, don't think. And that was to tell him to really write from the subconscious and just whatever your subconscious is telling you to put down there, it's a better storyteller than your intellectual part of your brain. And I, I observed that for sure with this. I didn't outline it and look back on it, you know, some months later, I was like, you know what, that reminds me a little bit of what it's like to go back to 826 Valencia and sort of see new generations of staffers and volunteers and kids coming into this center that we created, you know, 20 years ago, and how these new people just continually breathe life into, into it in a way that I couldn't if I tried, and how necessary it is that they, that you allow, you got to step out of the way and let new people interpret it and embody it and change it a little bit and make it new and vibrant. And that's why, you know, going back into the center, or, you know, going into the new centers or the interpretations of the idea in other cities, it's so moving to me that it's really hard to be in there sometimes because I have such a visceral reaction where I just cannot believe that this place still exists and that it's grown and that it's still having an effect on kids the way it did in those first weeks in 2002. For sure. Now I see that maybe there's something in the subconscious that's saying, here I am rejecting Freud and now I'm talking about all the subconscious storytelling. But there is something and there's a parallel there for sure. When you do go back into 826 and you're around all these students, I know you've been partly focused on reducing the role of technology in these classrooms, limiting cell phone use, screen time, etc., how are you thinking about this battle with technology addiction in 2021? It's tough because all schools went fully digital this last year. So it accelerated the, you know, the move to a, you know, mostly digital educational realm by, you know, tenfold. It's whatever was going to happen maybe 10 years from now all happened last year where kids are on screens the entire day, their uh, attendance is tracked digitally, their participation, their every assignment is wholly digital. It's all channeled through software owned by giant tech companies. They may not be using that information for other purposes other than education. I think it was a really um, unfortunate 
confluence of events that really aggregated a lot more power in the hands of the tech behemoths. And it also strapped kids to their chairs and made them stare at the screen for far longer than could conceivably be healthy, especially kids in cities where they might not have a lot of outdoor space. I think it's wildly destructive to an adolescent mind to be strapped to a screen for that long. And I think I know teachers were conscious of it, and I know that and teachers were probably saying, okay, get up and do this and do that and show me everybody jumping outside, you know, and doing jumping jacks. And I know that they did this, you know, they said, show me. And they had to film themselves doing their, you know, exercises. But still, whenever I hear about, and there are schools up here in the Bay Area that are outdoors almost all day, and that they do sailing and they do hiking and they do whatever and classrooms under a tree and how to build a fire and how to do that, I'm always intrigued by that sort of educational model as a little bit of a hedge against this increasingly digital version. Every study says the same thing, that they need to be outdoors, that they need to be connected to the natural world, that it's a bulwark against depression, against neuroses, against you name it. Um, And yet so many forces are conspiring to put kids in front of screens. And I think we do need to analyze and really justify every additional minute that a kid has to look at a screen. And I think that as parents and teachers and everybody really has to think about it. It's convenient sometimes. It makes it easier to track the grades and all of that stuff. Every minute is wrong. Every minute is destructive. So it should be, it's like junk food or like anything else. We should have to really think hard about every time that we uh, ask them to stare at a screen and try to think of an alternative to every single minute that they're going to do that because they're, you know, they're watching movies and playing games on screens too. So if their education is all channeled through screens, then we're talking about most of the waking hours being, uh, you know, bound to the same screen and, and that's going to be profoundly destructive to a generation. And we've got to give them a chance at something else. We'll be right back after a quick break. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History, my podcast about the overlooked and the misunderstood. A couple of years ago, I wrote a book called Outliers. It was about exceptional people, the ones who operate at the outer edges of human performance. Outliers fascinate me. And last year, I discovered an outlier in the form of a community organization, Washington State's City of Bellevue. The city wanted to improve public safety by making their roads safer. So they created something that no one had ever built before platform that gave road users warnings of any dangers ahead in real time. How did they build it? By using a combination of technologies, the cellular vehicle-to-everything network, T-Mobile's 5G network, and 5G-connected cameras. People driving, bicycling, walking, running, can't forget people running, and people operating the transportation network now had a way to prevent crashes. It's been a huge success. The City of Bellevue earned first place in the community category at the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards, an event that celebrates T-Mobile customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of meaningful change. If you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, 
and your team has, like the city of Bellevue, innovated something really, really cool, I encourage you to enter. It's also a great way for outliers to be recognized in front of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts. I want to unpack that outlook a little bit because just the very nature of us talking right now, you on an Obama-era cell phone, your refusal to have internet in your home, or even to accept my very nice microphone, which, which I offered to use for this podcast. I can't see your face. You can't see mine. It suggests the kind of lifestyle that you've chosen. Yeah, I, you know, I'm, I try to just create a balance where I'm using tools and they're not using me. And by everybody's ready acquiescence to Zoom for all communication is, has been so startling <laughs> to me. Just in one year, almost all what used to be phone calls are now Zooms. And it is, it is an inferior method of communication for sure. Because again, you cannot move. You're bound to one seat, whereas with the phone, you can move around and you can do other things and you can draw and you can garden and you can eat and you can cook and you can, you know, there's just a thousand things you can do on the phone. And you can imagine what your friend or whoever you're talking to looks like and use your mind a bit. But the Zoom is just every Zoom looks like a hostage video because in a way you are, you're just strapped to a chair again. And the way that we accept that as okay, like, well, now we're zooming without really examining it and thinking like, is this better? And do we really want this? And everybody hates Zoom. Everybody. I've never heard anyone say how much they love 
being strapped to a chair and forced to stare at it. And you know, everyone talks about how draining and uh, soul-sucking it is. And yet, it's just accepted as the new way. And I, I find it really puzzling sometimes how these new developments are accepted as a way of life without us thinking like, do we want them? <laughs> and am I happier this way? And so for me, this the I don't want a smartphone. There's nothing on it that's appealing to me. I really like regular phone calls with talking with people. And I like, you know, talking with you and just having our voices heard. And um, meanwhile, I get to sketch, you know, and drawing animals and stuff as we draw. And I can do other things and look around. And I don't feel like I'm locked into this rainy video, you know, for an hour uh, or so simply because it's been decided that that's the medium of the day. It's, uh, I just feel like the, the digital thinkers, and it was Jaron Lanier who always used to put it so well, it's just like he always would tell people to experiment on yourself and think about how do you want to live and how do you want to use this technology and is it better than what preceded it? And if it's not, and if it makes you less happy, then you shouldn't be using it. And as long as you're intentional about it and you're always thinking about what makes you feel good, and what is right for you, the same way that you would with any part of your life, right? Diet or exercise or anything else. I think too often with technology, we accept it as a unavoidable fact of life as opposed to something that we have control over and that we can take what we want and pass on those parts of it that we, that we don't. Why do you think we're so quick to accept these changes? Why don't we push back more? That's been puzzling to me since the early 90s when I started noting these things. Because I was an early Mac user when it was 1% or 2% of the market. And that felt like a very maverick time when you used whatever you wanted to use. If you used Microsoft, you were a sheep. If you were a Mac user, you were an iconoclast. <laughs> and... Of course, everything is flipped now, but seeing everybody with a smartphone is astonishing. I mean, I, I don't know if in our lifetimes we've had anything that has had 100% saturation within 10 years for almost every human on the planet. Like, think about it. The way that everyone's lives are channeled through a smartphone is also just very quick and radical active speciation. We've evolved very quickly to be a different species in 10, 12 years. I think we should spread ourselves out a bit more and not have everything mediated through one device. I just feel like it's probably better for us in the long run if we can use these tools occasionally, but also sparingly. I think more fundamentally, you're making an argument for injecting more intentionality into our day-to-day -day lives. And I wondered where that came from for you. You know, I guess I came from a, you know, a libertarian household, but, and I would not subscribe to most libertarian views, but I do think we do need to know ourselves and know what does and doesn't work for ourselves. I love the tactile world. There's a bit of Oshin in, in, in me in that I would just far rather be out in the 
in the natural world than experiencing it third hand through a screen. And every year that passes, that preference grows more profound. And every minute I have to look at a screen, it drives me banana, even though I do have to use screens. And I do write on a 14-year-old computer that I really like a lot, but I I'm always looking for whatever chance I can to be unconnected. And the more that that company is tether us to them to be able to use their tools, we can't disconnect the same way we used to be able to. The internet in many ways is an extension of ourselves. And in thinking about that, I'm reminded of this quote you had from an interview in 2019. You said, there's only so much thinking about yourself that you should do on a daily basis. And I wondered, as a person and as a writer, do you think that instinct to not think about yourself all day and instead think about the lives of others, do you think that instinct was born in your college years at journalism school at the U of I? To some extent, the first feature story that I was assigned was about a young woman, Lisa Tenhouse, who was a double lung and heart transplant candidate. She was a year younger than me. I was a sophomore, I think, and she was a freshman. And she was trying to raise awareness about organ donation and to tell all these college students to put the red sticker on their driver's license to make themselves organ donors. I interviewed her, and she was very bright and idealistic about it and wrote a feature story. And that was the first feature I wrote, and it had some measurable impact. There was an uptick in people asking about uh, organ donation and putting that sticker on. And Lisa was happy and she became a lifelong friend of mine. And that was my first experience with the impact that journalism can have. And also the idea of using whatever skill you have with sentences and language to um, improve conditions around you. And so, yeah, I wrote a memoir, but after that, although, you know, sometimes you write a story to write a story, like I think Museum of Rain is really a story for its own sake and just hoping to delight, give pleasure to a reader. But there are things that you write hoping that they can change the world a bit, conditions a little bit, awareness of something a little bit, and that you can walk in somebody else's shoes for a while. I do think that there's just there's a very quick turning point where thinking about yourself is healthy and then pivots hard to being really unhealthy. Whereas if you live most of your life in the real world among real people and whenever you can saying, how can I be of service? Invariably, that leads to a healthier balance. How much of 826 was your answer to that question, how can I be of service? My mom was a teacher and my sister was a teacher and a lot of my best friends became teachers. And uh, I was really just sort of trying to follow their example a little bit, and I put a few things together, which was that they had the need for more bodies in the classroom, more uh, eyes on student work, one-on-one hours with students needing it. And then I knew of people that had that time to give. And so I could overcomplicate it or pretend I had a bigger idea than that. I really didn't. It was that simple. In the first year we existed was no more complicated than that. Here's a room, here's some tables, here's some humans, come on in if you need help. Nineveh Caligari, the executive director, came in and made it much more professional. And she was a you know, 
longtime teacher, and she made sure it was it aligned with measurements and common core goals and all of that stuff. But at the at the core, the idea was and remains the same. If you go into any of these rooms now, it looks exactly the same as it did 20 years ago. It's humans still working on paper mostly, shoulder to shoulder, listening to each other, looking at each other, and making a connection. You know, we've been sent hundreds of digital tools over the years. Um, here's a bunch of laptops. Here's a, here's a machine that'll read to your kid. Here's all these ways that we can sub substitute human interaction with sterile digital facsimiles. And we've had to resist all of that. And this last year, when most of our instruction went online, has been uh, a detour. But once we can open up again safely, it'll still be the same thing. Humans in a room. Kids need that so badly, and they respond so profoundly to it. And if you give a kid a real choice between explaining himself to an actual human and telling a story to an actual human and playing a video game, they will always choose the human that's really listening because there's such an electricity to being really heard and having that human say, oh my gosh, that is so great. Oh, I love that. Oh man. I was on the phone with a fourth grade class in Washington State today who had learned something I wrote and I send them stuff in progress sometimes to see what they think. And there was 19 kids and we could have talked for four hours because brains are just blossoming and their enthusiasm is so sincere and unmitigated. And um, and I'm there listening to them and they're listening to me and nobody wants to be anywhere else because that bond is so uh, electric. So I think that we often substitute this real reaction, this real interaction without even trying. You know, there are there is increasingly software that grades student writing. Uh, there are algorithms and there's companies making millions and hundreds of millions of dollars on this software now that reads and grades student writing. And I think state by state and test by test, they're replacing human graders with algorithms and to the point where very soon a lot of standardized tests that are meant to determine whether or not kids are ready to move on to the next grade um, are going to be uh, run by algorithms. So a student's measure of his or her ability to express themselves will be measured by an algorithm that admittedly cannot read. And so I think it's, it shows how much and how willing we are to cede control and to cede decisions and to cede measurements to algorithms um, out of convenience, out of sloth, laziness, disinterest, but certainly a disrespect for the value of youth expression. I think it's incredibly dangerous. You said earlier that in this story, Oshin was worried about whether kids could still be kids. Will they still be kids out in the world as they're journeying to this museum of rain, which he created 50 years ago? But I think in the undercurrent of this story, there are larger questions that are more profound around what should be preserved? What's someone's legacy? What is their way of, of proving that they were here? And I wonder, as someone who lost both of their parents in a six-week window during your senior year of college in your early 20s. Were those questions about preservation and legacy and longevity, were those questions starting to be formed then at that point? 
I think if you're confronted with death that at that age, which is young, but we were not children, I wasn't, and my older siblings weren't, and you know, so it was we're old enough to understand um, what it means to be an adult, but also knowing that you know my parents died about the age that I am now. So that hasn't been lost on me, um, and it wasn't then either. At any age, it, it can be the end and your story is over. But I think that there's two sides to Oshin's take on it, which is on the one hand, he wonders that's what he's leaving behind, because here's a guy who has no kids and has lived alone and sort of separated himself from the rest of the family that otherwise is far-flung but somewhat close-knit. And I think his older brother, Patrick, sort of invites him, knowing that there's going to be a little bit more to it than Oshin feared. So he's doing him a favor. And it's a way to sort of weave him back into the rest of the world. And so, you know, I think Oshin is happily surprised by this one part of whatever legacy he, he leaves as a person who's lived apart for so long. But... At the same time, I also subscribe to the fact that when you're gone, you're gone. It's not like you're floating on a cloud looking down at whatever becomes of your exhibit you built in a, in a tree. So more than anything, I think it's important for Oshin to see it while he's alive and to, to take joy in these moments and a walk with 12 kids. It gives him, uh, makes him quite young again and um, allows him to... Uh, be a kid again a bit. So, you know, it's always a mistake if you're living your life and thinking about one legacy. I interviewed Governor Jerry Brown in the first, in the last few months of his governorship when he was on his way out and I asked about legacy and he just blew up. <laughs> he was just so sick of that question and just, he was so humble as an a monk-like Jesuit that he is. He was like, why do we care about this? When I'm gone, I'm gone. People don't even, people aren't going to remember my name two years from now, let alone 10 years or 20 years from now. So none of that matters. And I think, again, from his Jesuit training, he was talking about service in the here and now and on the day-to-day. And that reward is given at the end of the day, whatever it is, or if you feel like you had impact on anything beyond that, is uh, folly. Before we go, instead of asking you about legacy or what you want to leave behind, can you describe your idea of a day well spent? It's really interesting because that's a major theme of what I'm working on right now, those words exactly. And at that reunion that this takes place after, another story coming that where Patrick poses those words, what is a day well spent? Um, so it's very eerie that you say that. Because if I have a bad writing day, then I'm annoyed uh, by that. Or if I waste time in some way and I don't get done what I want to get done, um, I'm a little less happy than if I had done something useful that day. But I do know that if there's a day that I'm not outside, then I really feel out of whack. If I don't weave myself into the natural world somehow, if I'm not under the sun for a couple hours, then um, it really feels wrong. And so that much I've figured out. 
if I can swim on a given day, then that's a day well spent. If I can be out on the baseball field for a couple hours, then for sure, it's that one's okay. If I can hike in the hills, then you can check that one off. As a, but if I, if I haven't been outside, I haven't lived that day for sure. I know that much about myself. The rest of it is, is tough. But, you know, I've got kids. I have a, a family that it's always well spent with them. And I'm not saying that just corny way. It sounded a little corny. Well, when you have that gift, when, our, when your kids are at such a fun age and you're all just like four best friends, and, um, it's all gravy. But, but there are other elements, too, that really make it feel more complete. And the theme that runs through that story is just that. Like these guys in two, two hours or three hours, Oshin and all of these kids have a very profound and memorable adventure. And all they're doing is walking. And none of them know exactly where they're going. And that's part of having adventures you really don't know. And you don't know whether we'll be at the end of it. I think that that's something that we've got to give ourselves a little bit more often. A day with adventure, even as modest as this one, is always well spent. Eventually, Oshin and the kids arrive at the Museum of Rain. And without spoiling too much, it's clear that what began as, you write, a hippie project, a couple wooden shelves built into a rock, housing bottles of rainwater from all these places your protagonist has lived. That space has been transformed. You write, hung from every branch there were jars of rain, each of them marked carefully with their province and date of capture. San Luis Obispo, 12-28-08, Bend, Oregon, 2 Maui, 8-8-15, Buenos Aires, 10-16-05. There were a hundred, maybe more, with the light refracted through each, creating the illusion of a vast living chandelier of water and glass. And then, you write, someone, or many people, had grown this humble notion into something gorgeous and delicate and grand. And I read that last line and I thought, oh, wow, that's how Dave sees 826 Valencia and... I have a feeling your children. Look what you're doing. You're doing just what I try to resist, these connections, although they're there, and you said it well. The story, I, you know, these are threads that definitely connect. I'm sorry, Dave. You can push back. No, <laughs> they're part of it, and they connect, and the resonance is for sure. But there remains the fact that we only saw that connection after the fact, or I certainly did. And I think I, whenever I talk to undergrads, I always say most of the things that your professors are telling you that a story is about, they did not know it when they wrote it. If they wrote it well, these connections come to them or are pointed out to them by somebody else, you know, like you're doing with me. And so I find it delightful to hear you say these things and make these connections. And they may or may not be true. They're, I mean, in truth, but they're, they're not part of the origin of the story, but they are something that makes an interesting uh, comparison. And so I think it, as long as we treat it as such, like, huh, that's a very interesting corollary to how 826 is. Well, I thank you for indulging my uh, intermittent idle speculation. Well, it's been 
so much fun. And thank you for your such thoughtful reading on all this. Next time, in person, no technology but some microphones. Absolutely. Dave Eggers, please stay safe. You too. Bye-bye. That's our show. Special thanks this week to Aileen Boyle. I'd also like to thank Dave Eggers. His new short story, The Museum of Rain, is available on ebook and audiobook through Scribd Originals and through McSweeney's if you'd like a hardcover. To learn more about Dave and his work, you can visit our show notes at talkeasypod.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, I imagine you would enjoy other conversations we've had with writers, including Elizabeth Gilbert, Fran Leibowitz, Jhumpa Lahiri, Michael Lewis, Malcolm Gladwell, Anne Lamott, George Saunders, and many, many more. You can find those on our site or wherever you do your podcasting, Spotify, Apple, Google, Stitcher. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, you can do so at TalkEasyPod. And if you'd like to join our mailing list, drop me a line at talkeasypod at gmail.com. Our executive producer is Janixa Bravo. Our associate producers are Caitlin Dryden and Nikki Spina. Our lead editor is Andre Lin. Our editor for today's episode is Caitlin Dryden. Our assistant editors are Eve Gershon, Clarice Guevara, and Joshua Siegel. Our interns are Callie Serengis, Kaylin Ung, Patrice Lee, and Grace Perkins. Our illustrations are by Krisha Shenoy. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gaberzak, Orion Wong, Ian Jones, Isabel Primavera, and Ethan Seneca. And of course, the show is produced by Caroline Reebok. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. We're back on Sunday with Uzo Aduba. Until then, stay safe and so long. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at, like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit kia.com to learn more. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800 3334 for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. 
Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts.